Today's scripture reading comes from Ruth chapter one, verses one through seven. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from a place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to hear your voice. Uh, Today, we're going to be starting a new sermon series in the book of Ruth, and it'll be a short series. Uh, because the book is only four chapters long. But despite its brevity, uh, I think you'll find this series to be very relatable and encouraging and faith-building because the book of Ruth basically teaches that though our lives are very messy and though we can make incredibly poor decisions in life, if God is part of our story, then his grace will always have the last word. It is truly a great story of how God's grace redeems that which is broken. So uh, by the time we're done with this series, I wouldn't be surprised at all if some of you considered naming your next child, right? Not Ezekiel, but (laughs) maybe Maybe Boaz, okay, or Ruth. Or if you don't have children, maybe your next pet, okay, Ruth or Boaz. Because those two characters really do shine throughout this story. Uh, The book of Ruth opens up with these words. In the days when the judges ruled. So right from the beginning, we're told something very important about the historical context. Because as you should know, The period of time when the judges ruled was one of the darkest periods in Jewish history. You know, when you read through the book of Judges, you're met with the repeated refrain, and the people did what was right in their own eyes, right? That's repeated again and again. People did what was right in their own eyes. So it wasn't a time of faithful obedience to the Lord. Rather, it was a time of great rebellion against the Lord and and doing what was right in one's own eyes. So unsurprisingly, there was this repeated cycle of rebelling and ignoring God's word, followed by God's act of judgment against his people. And then the people would cry out and repent of their sins, and then God would send them a deliverer who was called a judge, and he would or she, 
would rescue his people. And as a result, they would experience some measure of rest right, for a period of time. And then the cycle would continue. But interestingly, later in the book, the act of repentance is missing, which means that it, 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 you know, it, it went from bad to worse rather quickly. Ian DeGood, who uh, wrote a helpful commentary, a beautiful one actually, uh, on Ruth, offers this additional insight that gives us an idea of how those times went from bad to worse. I read, as the book of Judges progresses, there is a change in the nature of the deliverers God sends. The first judge, you guys remember? The first judge is named Othniel. And Othniel is this very squeaky clean hero. In contrast, the last judge, Samson, systematically undermines our expectations of what a deliverer ought to be, right? Called to be a Nazarite by birth, right? he was supposed to avoid contact with anything that would defile him, including anything dead, but he scoops honey from the corpse of a lion. <laughs> And instead of avoiding contact with the Philistines, he wants to marry one. And instead of avoiding fermented drinks, he participates in a drinking party with his future Philistine in-laws. And so Samson ends his life bringing judgment on God's enemies, but establishing no rest for God's people. And so the final chapters of the book of Judges show us in graphic detail a nation that had comprehensively lost its way, becoming every bit as bad as the pagan nations that were the previous inhabitants of the land, do good rights. In other words, to put it simply, the period of Judges was a very bleak time when, again, people did what was right in their own eyes. So that's what we learn from the first few words of our story in verse 1, right? But that's only the first few words of verse 1. Um, let's read on. You know, when you're reading the shorter books of the Bible, you'll notice that the authors normally don't waste any words, and this verse is no exception. So let's unpack the rest of verse 1, okay? In the days... It says, when the judges ruled, it says, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so during one of the most rebellious times in Jewish history, it says that there was a famine. And this is supposed to make you pause and wonder, okay, if the famine, if this famine was a result of the rebellion of God's people, right? Essentially a judgment from God. Now, the Bible may not explicitly say that it was up front, but it's hard not to draw that conclusion since that's what the author sort of hints at in verse 6. Because in verse 6, it says that Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem after hearing that the Lord is now giving her people food again. Impl implication is this. It was the Lord who initially withdrew his hand from his people that led to a famine, you see. 
And so I believe that it's very safe to conclude that God's people were experiencing famine and hardship because of their rebellion against God. And that shouldn't surprise any of us, right? You know, human suffering, including suffering caused by famines and natural disasters, you know, it may not always be the direct results of our disobedience, but sometimes it is. And in this story, I tell you, that's exactly what's happening. Let's think about some examples we may find in the Bible, okay? Let's first think about some examples of suffering in the Bible that, let's say, wasn't a direct result of human sin or disobedience. Can you think of any off the top of your head? Right? I think the easiest example would be something like the story of Job. Right? He suffered greatly, not because of his personal sin, but because God had some other plan. Right? What else? What other example comes to mind? I thought of the man born blind in John 9. It says, as, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciple asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And guess what Jesus says? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. Another example, right, of, of a man suffering not being the direct result of his sin. How about the flip side? Can you think of an example in the Bible of suffering that was a direct result of human sin and disobedience, right? There are many, actually, right? Uh, the easiest example might be Adam's exile from Eden. Or how about God's people being exiled into Babylon, you know, ba Babylon, right? That thought, whenever you hear exile, you should directly think about, okay, it, it was because people sinned, people rebelled, they disobeyed and therefore exile. How about the more recent example we saw in Acts chapter 12 during our Acts series? Remember when Herod, King Herod was struck down and eaten by worms because he posed to be this God figure, right? Why did God allow him to die on the spot? Because of his rebellion and sin. Or how about Judas's betrayal and death? Why did he suffer? Well, because of his sin. And so you, you see these examples uh, all throughout Scripture. And so again, I summarize. Human suffering may not always be the direct result of our disobedience, but sometimes it is. And in this story, it surely is. Now, this may surprise some of you, but even nowadays, even in our modern time, whenever I hear news of famine or droughts, or any kind of like catastrophe, I don't automatically rule out the fact that God may be, just may be using such tragedies in order to execute his judgment on certain people, or groups, or nations. And I would never go on TV or radio and claim that God does this with absolute certainty in this particular incident, but I'll also never deny that it's possible. Right? Because as a sovereign God, he does have the authority to execute his justice in any way he sees fit. But we should move on, OK? 
Okay, let's read the rest of verse one and verse two as well. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, okay? Verse two, the name of the man was Elimelech, okay? Elimelech literally means my God is king, and so we'll, we'll kind of <laughs> we'll kind of see if he truly lived up to his name or not, okay? And the name of his wife, Naomi, literally means sweet or pleasant, okay? And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, literally means sick and dying, okay? Never name your sons Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and not just visited there, they weren't tourists, okay? They remained there. They decided to settle there for many years. Now, here's the first little irony that we find in this story, okay? It says, you know, uh, they left Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So <laughs> people are now starving in the house of bread. What an irony. Why? Judgment from God. These are truly troubling times for God's people. And if you're, if you're a Jew back in those days, you should have been repenting of your sins and asking God to restore the land, right? the land that he promised to them. But instead, we read that a man from the house of bread went to explore the greener pastures of the country of Moab. And then verse two, it says again that he dwelt there. He, he remained there. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you know anything about the relationship between the Jews and the Moabites, this kind of thing was never supposed to happen, right? Never supposed to happen. Like if you were a faithful Jewish husband and father who was tasked to lead his family well, this would have never happened. Let me try to help you understand this more clearly, okay? Elimelech, again, whose name is my God is king, he has this important choice to make as a husband and the father of two sons, okay? Does, does my God is king, Elimelech, choose to stay in Judah where his family will be in community with other believers and be held spiritually accountable, or will he move to Moab? simply based on economic and financial reasons. You know, putting economic and financial reasons over faith and spiritual community is what many people tend to do, right? We're tempted to do that as well, right? Some people will say that, of course, of course, this makes sense. Of course, Elimelech, should have moved to Moab. I mean, the man has to feed his family, does he not? But the thing is, Moab was no place for Elimelech and his family to be. Now, if, if Elimelech maybe was called by God as a prophet or as a missionary, right, to go into Moab and speak God's word to them, maybe, you know, fine. Right? That could be an exception. But that's not what's happening here, brothers and sisters. Elimelech knew 
very well that the Jews fell into all sorts of idolatry with the Moabites, especially into sexual sin. This was their history. The Moabites served as a major stumbling block to them. All of the Jews knew that Moab was a product of Lot having sex with his own daughter. And the Moabites were known for their sexual immorality and perversion as a people during this very time. Most importantly, Elimelech knew very well that the Moabites did not worship the true God, Yahweh. They worshiped Chemosh and Moloch instead. And if they moved to Moab, if he led his family to Moab, he would have known that his sons would have had to marry ungodly Moabite women. See, that's what Elimelech knew for a fact so what he decides to do is basically continue what people did during the time of the judges, which was to do what was right in his own eyes. Ian DeGood, the commentator, he wrote something very insightful he wrote, the roads we choose for ourselves often make our deepest heart commitments plain for all to see. Brothers and sisters, what, what roads have you chosen for yourselves? As head of household, Elimelech failed miserably. His thinking was short-sighted. When you decide to relocate your family you're deciding who your wife will fellowship with. You're deciding who your children will fall in love with and marry. And Elimelech only counted the financial cost and failed to, to account for the spiritual cost of the move to Moab. That's a huge mistake. Another irony we see is that Elimelech moved to Moab to live but he died instead. And one thing we can take away from this is that life and death is truly in God's hands. As the Bible says, if you lose your life, you will save it. And if you try to save your life, you will lose it. Don't forget that. It's such an important principle, right? You cannot, brothers and sisters, try to preserve your life while you live in disobedience to God thinking that you somehow have the power to save yourself. That is a lie. Life and death is in God's hands. If you try to save your life through unjust and unrighteous means, you will, I promise you, eventually lose it. Right? Can't you see? That is the road to Moab. It's a very wide road that everyone likes to take, but it is a road that leads to death and destruction. And what happens to Malon and Kilion who choose to follow their foolish father? They marry a Moabite woman, of course. This would be like a Christian marrying a non-Christian and trying to make the marriage work. It's impossible in the long run. And notice that they have no children even after 10 years. What is that about? You know, we can never say that infertility is a sure sign of God's 
displeasure upon a marriage, but I tell you, in this context, that's exactly how it should be understood, especially because we're told that the two sons die also not too long after the death of their father. This is God's, God's curse placed upon this family. Again, why did Elimelech move? He moved to give his sons a better life, did he not? But what happens? They die young. They die childless. Again, life and death ultimately is in God's hands. You cannot expect to survive very long when you're living in direct rebellion against God. So at this point in the story, you should be able to feel the weight of the tragedy that struck Naomi. She is not completely innocent in this story since she chose to remain in Moab for a long period of time, even without her husband in the picture. But it's also true, right, if you think about it, she wasn't primarily responsible for moving her family to Moab in the first place. I mean, she had to follow her husband, especially in these ancient times, right? She had to follow her leader. So ultimately, this was Elimelech's call but regardless of the past decisions that were made, now she is at, at her lowest point in life. And can you imagine the pain of having to bury your own children along with your own husband within the span of 10 years? Imaginable heartache and pain. And she's still in Moab with no church, <laughs> No one to mourn and grieve with, essentially. She's a Jewish widow in a foreign land with no social security, no life insurance to fall back on. There truly is no future for her in Moab. After the death of all the men in her family, Naomi now really has no choice but to move back to Judah, to return home. Verse 6 says this, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. There must have been some people repenting of their sins. God restored the land. He's providing for his people again in Bethlehem, the house of bread. In verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. This was a terrible time for Naomi, but you don't want to miss this, okay? This, this point in her life is also a crucial turning point. This is the point in the story where someone in the story is finally making the right decision. Right, things turn here. Right, this is a moment. Things turn. You see, think of it this way. So far in the story, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, okay? But now, in this moment, finally, Naomi, whether she realizes it or not, she does what is right in God's eyes, finally. This is uh, rather surprising for me to discover, but this, this teaches us something 
about God's providential care for us. Because there are times when we are so blinded by our own life circumstances that God has to actually force our hand and literally corner us into making a decision that we were not willing to make on our own. I thought of uh, an example in my own life. I'm not proud to share this, but in my case, there was a girl that I really liked in college who I thought I was going to marry, okay? And her name was not Joyce, okay? (laughs) At the time, I was blinded by my emotions, like most college students, okay? Sorry if you're a college kid here, but you're probably stupid like I was, okay? We're all blinded by our emotions. And I, I couldn't, at the time, I could not see that she really did not have a heart for the Lord. That's how blind I was. So what did God do for me when I didn't deserve anything from him? He basically forced me to do the right thing by having, not me, but having her initiate the breakup. In other words, she dumped me, okay? I didn't dump her. I just couldn't bring myself to do that because, again, I was blinded. I said, it's going to work out. It's going to work out. You know, maybe if I don't go to seminary, you know, she can reconsider. And and that that may have been true. But what, what would that have left me? That would have been my road to Moab, you see. God was being gracious to me. He spared me. He cornered me, right? He forced my hand. Has something like that ever happened to you? Where you are too stubborn to make the right decision? So God has to intervene and, and force your hand to do the right thing? You know, maybe you were secretly living in sin, but you were found out unwillingly, involuntarily. You were found out. And maybe it negatively impacted your life for a season, but I tell you, maybe, probably, most likely, that was God's grace being made evident in your life. He spared you. He forced your hand. He corners you. He rescued you from your sin. If you can think of an example like that, I think you have to recognize that it was the the grace of God in play. He was there for you. Here's a very thought-provoking quote from our commentator, Do Good. The very fact we have come, whether willingly or unwillingly, to see the emptiness of the fields of Moab is itself a hopeful sign of the Lord's work in our hearts. I can relate to that. When I read that, I was like, that, <laughs> that speaks to me. Thank you, God. Thank you for sparing me. So what do you think about the story so far? It's pretty good, right? Some of you may identify with Elimelech more. You know, you're the one who's been mainly responsible for 
the poor decisions you made in your life, and maybe you're living with some measure of guilt and shame. Some of you will identify more with Naomi, right? Because maybe you feel like you had very little choice in being in a place like Moab. But see, you're in Moab now. Right? You're in your place of Moab. But it's like too inconvenient for you now to make the right decision. Like making any drastic changes now while you're in Moab would be just too cumbersome. You've already established yourself in life. I don't want to change things right now. Or I don't want to rock the boat. Maybe that's what you're thinking. So no matter where you may be in life, no matter who you may identify with more, I want to invite you to return home to the Lord. Brothers, sisters, return home. Do not be complacent in Moab. It is not too late for you to return home because God is still willing to be patient with you. Please do not wait for him to force your hand because it may not even happen. It's best if you return to him voluntarily and willingly. It is true that God is gracious, but it's also true that we're never to think that we can take advantage of his grace, his patience. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his response is, by no means. How can we? Absolutely not. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Brothers and sisters, how can we remain in Moab when we consider what our Savior has done for us? Are our hearts that calloused? Let me leave you with one more quote from Do Good. Whereas Elimelech left the place of famine to seek a false blessing in Moab, Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven to bring us a true blessing on earth. What a beautiful contrast. Right, let me continue on. Elimelech and Naomi sent themselves into exile from the land of promise, trying to build their own kingdom rather than waiting for God to do it. Jesus, however, he went into exile from his father's presence so that he might rescue us from our own kingdom building and grant us a true and living future in his glorious kingdom. Brothers and sisters, how can we remain in Moab when we consider what our Savior has done for us? What road have you been on lately? Taking the road to Moab and dwelling there makes perfect sense from a worldly point of view. But the story of Ruth makes it clear to us that it is a wide road that leads to death and destruction. And as Christians, as you, as you should know, we are called to take the road less traveled, which is the narrow road that leads to life. Amen? 
So please take some time to examine your hearts and to make a commitment to change the direction of your life if you've been living in rebellion and disobedience in any way. It is not too late for you to return to the Lord. Let's all together repent and believe and obey and honor the Lord with the lives that we've been given. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us through the opening verses of the book of Ruth that even when we make bad decisions, your grace has the power to change everything. We thank you that you're able to even take our mistakes and use them for your good purposes. Knowing how sovereign you are, it does help us trust you even more, especially when the path before us remains unclear and even dangerous. In light of your goodness and power, we ask that you would give us the courage to now follow your lead. Just as you provided for Ruth and Naomi in their time of need, we pray that you would provide for us as well. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'll stand together and give praise to God.